Thank you, Pastor Brad. And it's so good to have everybody with us today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 15, the passage of Scripture that Pastor Brad got through reading will be right there. And then we'll look at chapter 16 as well. I'd invite you to pull out those message notes. Several weeks ago, I started a series on David. And I want to continue this morning talking about the life of David. Talking about the life of David. Um, I, I heard a story. I heard a story about a group of elderly ladies. There was a group of elderly ladies, and they were traveling down the freeway, and uh, they were late. They were in their late 80s, you know, really getting up there in some years. Not that old, not really. Getting way up there some, in the years, and a policeman pulled them over. A policeman pulled this carload of elderly ladies over, and uh, went up to the driver's window, and the guy, the policeman said, "Ma'am, did you know that you were going extremely slow?" She said, I knew that. He said, you were only going 35 miles per hour. She said, I know that. He said, why would you do that? She said, I saw a sign back there that said 35. I saw a sign back there that said 35. He chuckled to himself. He laughed to himself. He said, ma'am, that's a highway sign. This is Highway 35. And then... And then he noticed that the rest of the elderly women were very scared looking and they were terrified looking. And he said, ma'am, how come all these ladies are frightened and they're scared? She said, I just got off of Highway 95. <laughs> I just got off Highway 95. <laughs> that's a corny one. I know it's corny, but that's kind of funny, isn't it? Hey, if there's one thing, if there's one thing this morning that I want to leave with you is that you don't have to be afraid and you don't have to be terrified and you don't have to be frightened. You can trust in the Lord. Nothing to be afraid of. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, this morning I'm asking that you'd help me to share this message and as always, make it applicable to our lives where the rubber meets the road. This uh, May of 2013, thank you that you've been with us this weekend, Lord. Thank you for your beautiful way in which you move in our midst, your sweet, sweet spirit. Continue to work. Help me to share this message, Lord. Plain, simple, applicable to where the rubber meets the road again in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read about a pastor... I read about a pastor that had several sons. He had three sons. And uh, one of the sons made a funny-looking face out of clay. A funny-looking face out of clay. It had a huge nose, and it had huge lips, and it had big elephant ears, and it had big eyes that stuck out. And it became a conversation piece. Whenever people would walk into this pastor's home in the entryway, they would notice this funny-looking head of a statue. And inevitably, the conversation piece got around who did it. And every single one of those people that knew the pastor and his family said, I know which one of the sons did it. Why? Because Doug's personality, his humorous personality, reflected that piece of funny-looking artwork. It reflected that. Now, I want to tell you something. King Saul was a real piece of artwork, so to speak. He was a real piece of artwork. 
The last time we got together, we said that Saul was self-centered. Saul was a bald-faced liar. Saul was one of those people that he was very egotistical. He kept doing things that disturbed God. He kept being disobedient. Time after time after time, God gave him chance after chance and after chance. And for 30 plus years, it was a continual downward slide, a slide, a slide, a slide. And finally, God got tired of it because Saul never ever repented and he said, I rejected you. I've rejected you as the king of Israel. You were the people's choice. You were never my choice. And finally, I've had it with you. I've rejected you. Now, it is at this particular place that Samuel comes along and Samuel tells Saul the bad news. And he says, Saul, God has rejected you. You no longer are going to be the king of Israel. Now, what was Saul's response? Saul uh, rationalized even further what he had done. And then he finally admitted, I am guilty. But he pleaded with Samuel the prophet. He said, look, uh, you've caught me in the act and I've confessed it privately. Now why don't you come back with me and we'll go on as nothing has happened he wanted to sweep it underneath the rug, so to speak. He wanted to just kind of whitewash it, you might want to say. Saul's trying to do everything he can do. He wants to look good in front of the elders and the people of Israel. But Samuel, being a man of God, being a person of integrity, being a prophet of God, saw through this entire thing, this sham, and clearly he knew that Saul had failed God. So Samuel said to the king, I, I won't humiliate you before the people. I'll go back with you through the ritual worship. But Saul, that's the last I want to see of you. Notice in chapter 15, verse 35, exactly what he says to him. Until the day Samuel died, he did not see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. He was an absolute moral failure. He was an absolute failure as a king. And Samuel did not see Saul again until his death. Now, Samuel went in one direction and Saul went into another direction. And the tragic story is, is that Saul never ever repented completely of his sins. He just kind of whitewashed it. He was concerned with his image. But there's something more tragic that is happening in our particular story this morning that I want to highlight. It is at this point that Samuel panics. It is at this point that Samuel becomes very, very depressed. It is at this point that Samuel really begins to experience what we would call an anxiety attack. You ever had an anxiety attack? Samuel, you see, uh, is the prophet. He is the man that God has used before Saul came along the, on the scene, you might want to say. And Samuel is very, very concerned about the children of Israel because the children of Israel, they're surrounded by their enemies. And at any time, they could, their enemies could come swooping in upon them. And they know, they know, and they sense that there's a weakness there. Saul has been disobedient. He's been doing all these things. And the people around them can feel this weakness. And Samuel knows that their enemies can sense it and they can feel it. And he's very, very concerned that their enemies would come upon them and, and overtake them. And he wants to see another earthly king elected. And so you might want to say he's anxiety-ridden. He's depressed. He's discouraged. He's going through a very, very difficult time in his life. 
And God seemingly is distant from him. And he's asking all those questions that we all ask when we go through a particularly difficult time in our life. He's saying, why? Why now? Why me? Why this? Why is this happening to me? And Samuel, again, is mourning, and he's got all these losses associated with this particular decision that God has made. And Samuel is in a very, very bad way. And in the face of these unknown factors that he's wrestling with, God speaks to him. Now, we've all, uh, we've all felt like the rug has been jerked out from underneath us at times. We've all sensed loss, and we've all felt anxiety, and we've all had anxious thoughts, and we've all been concerned about loved ones, and we have adult children, and we, they make bad choices sometimes, and, and we have to live with some of their choices, and our world is shaken to the very core. I got a call. I got a call that no pastor wants to get a call. I got a call at 3 o'clock in the morning a number of years ago. It was uh, a middle-aged lady, a member in our church. She was weeping, crying. And I could hear her husband crying in the background. She said, Pastor Ron, I just heard the news that my oldest son, driving on a backcountry road in Texas with his girlfriend, wrapped the car around the tree and they were killed instantly. We all have those times where the rug is jerked out from underneath us. And I, I, I'm doing a bad job describing this, but Samuel felt that way. He's anxious. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He has history with God, but the history with God seemingly has gone out the window. And he's very, very concerned about what's going to happen. Do you remember the author M. Scott Peck? He wrote the book, Less Traveled. And the very opening line in his book is this. Life is difficult. Life is difficult. And what do we do in the face of the difficulties of life? We see, I believe that God gave Samuel four don'ts, not do's, Four don'ts. Four don'ts. And I think that the context and the application is very appropriate to where we find ourselves in our life. First of all, I believe that God speaks the word to him and he says, don't panic. That's a good word, isn't it? Don't panic. Don't give in to your anxious thoughts. Get out of that pit of depression. Get out of that discouragement. Panic never helps anybody. It never helps you. Remind yourself... I am in control. I know what you're going through. So be patient and be trusting. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn, be grieved, be depressed, be concerned for Saul, the context, the children of Israel? I have rejected him as king over Israel. I'm in control. I know what's happening. I know the situations that you find yourself in. What Samuel forgot and what we often forget, forget and what he did not realize and what we often don't realize 
is that behind the particular scenes that we find ourselves and behind the particular situations that we find ourselves, God is absolutely working and weaving and, and, and making things and, and creating things and allowing things and things are happening that we don't understand and that we cannot even comprehend. What Samuel forgot is that God is the one who, according to Scripture, before the foundations of the world, He knew exactly when you were going to be born, what was going to happen in your life, and all the circumstances that you would find yourself in. And He knew exactly what was going to happen to Samuel and the children of Israel. And we say to Him, Lord, if you just tell me, if you just let me in on the what's happening and give me the full picture, I'll be a lot more trusting and I'll be in great shape. Just reveal it to me. Explain your plans to me and I'll count on you. But that's not faith. Why is it that God puts us on a faith journey and He doesn't drop a sheet down from heaven and He doesn't give us step number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, and number ten. It'd be a lot easier if we had all ten steps. But often only God gets a little bit of revelation. Just a little bit. Just step number one in. And often He says, just on a daily, daily revelation, a daily trusting, I'll give you just a little bit of guidance and a little bit of help today to help you. As somebody said in that song, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we do know who holds tomorrow. We do know who tomorrow holds. Now, I want you to listen to what someone writes in the context of trusting God in the midst of difficulties, in the context of uh, moral failure because of a pastor. We've all experienced moral failures because of pastors. Our faith has been shaken or because of some Christian leader or because a husband or because a spouse has walked out because they haven't done the things that they said they were going to do. Some church board member, whatever, maybe. Someone writes, when a man or woman of God fails, nothing of God fails. When a man or woman of God changes, nothing of God changes. When someone dies, nothing of God dies. When our lives are altered by the unexpected, nothing of God is altered or unexpected. Before you even utter a word, God promises, I'm involved in answering. In fact, while you were speaking, I'm involved in bringing to pass the very thing I planned from the get-go. But it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it because we don't have the whole picture and all we have is a piece of the puzzle. And that piece of the puzzle doesn't... I I don't know how it's going to fit all together and I don't have the whole understanding here. In Isaiah we read that when we go through the fires we will not be burned and when we go through the waters we will not be drowned. In Romans chapter 8 we know that God always makes something good out of the bad. But I'm experiencing something bad. God's not the instigator of the bad. He's not the instigator of the disease. He's not the instigator of the car accident. He's not the instigator of evil. God's not the instigator of those particular things. But He sovereignly allows them, and I can't understand, and you can't understand, and that's where the rub comes in. But in the midst of the terrible, in the midst of the awful, He makes something good out of the bad. Always. Always. He makes something good out of the bad. And often, it doesn't turn out as bad as we initially thought our, our thinking because we don't have the whole picture. 
we don't have the whole panorama. Well, so don't panic. Don't panic. I, I, I read, um, I read um, this last week about Fyodor, I'm going to butcher his last name, is that okay? Dostoevsky. Remember the Russian writer, Dostoevsky? I can't even say it. Fyodor Dostoevsky. I read about him this last week. Did you know that that guy, that famous Russian writer, he was a 19th century, lived in the 19th century Russia, and and he joined a a Russian military group because he thought that he was going to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. What a concept, huh? And what he was going to do is, he joined a group of socialists, and they were going to overthrow the czar. Well, it didn't happen that way, and he got thrown into prison. And I read that they stood him before a wall where others like him had met their fate. He was blindfolded, and he heard those, you know, those dreaded words, ready, aim, and fire. And he even heard uh, the bullets go off, the rifle shot. But he didn't die because the, the bullets were blank. They were blank. And, 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 um, and, and they had put him through this entire ordeal of dying as a part of his punishment. And, you know, this, it was a cruel psychological thing to do. But they were trying to break him. They were trying to break him. However, for Dostoevsky, facing death without dying, in his own words, gave him a new appreciation and passion for life. He learned to live in the face of death. And later he would confess that he had lived more and what had been convinced were last moments of life than he ever lived before. Because when he ate his last meal, he treasured every single morsel that went into his mouth. When he went before the firing squad right before, he said he basked in the sun and the blue sky as though he never had seen it before. And because... They were the last people he thought he was going to see. He memorized all the faces of his particular people that were going to shoot him. Each moment he led, that led up to his execution, instead of breaking him, made him be more passionate, you might want to say. And he tried to suck out of what remained of life that he could possibly give. He had learned in the face of death that uh, ancient Latin phrase, carpe diem, carpe diem, seize the day, seize the day. And this is God's words to Samuel. Your life's not over. Your people's lives are not over. It looks terrible. It looks black. It looks bleak. It looks like a terrible thing. But seize the day. Live in the present. Live for the moment. Get out of that depression. Get out of the panic mode. Realize that panic, anxiety, doesn't accomplish anything. Somebody said that anxiety is like stewing without doing. It's like rocking in a rocking chair and it's not doing anything and it's not going anywhere. It's stewing without doing. So don't panic. Don't panic. Don't give in to panic. God is in control. Look at the positive.
Don't panic. This leads me to the second don't. Here it is. Are you ready for it? Very simple. Don't overthink or analyze. Don't overthink or analyze. You see, when we get involved in trials and difficulties, we try to all figure it out. Well, what's going to happen if they say this? And what's going to happen if they do this? And what's going to happen here? And I have to go here. And I have to do this. And I have to do that. And this is this. And this is what happened. And oh, I'm going over here. And pretty soon your, mile, your mind is running a mile a minute, so to speak. Don't overthink. Don't overanalyze. God's answers are a lot different than we often think. And they are very, very simple. God just says often, trust me, go there, do this. Do this. They're very, very simple. I want you to notice uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 2 through 3. How long, verse 1, how long, this is God speaking to, to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to the household of Jesse in Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Notice the Lord said, our Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I Indicate. In other words, follow me. I have a plan. I have a direction for you and for our people, your people. You, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to have an IQ of a genius. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have the brains of Albert Einstein. All I want you to do is follow me. Very simple instructions. Do exactly what I tell you to do. Don't overthink. I know your situation. I'm telling you what to do, so I want you to do it. Take a heifer, go to Jesse's household, offer the sacrifice, and look around, and I'll tell you the man I've chosen for the job. It's that simple. And often we, again, like to overanalyze, over-strategize, examine, or whatever it may be. Meanwhile, guess what? Behind the scenes, God is working. He's working in a little teenage shepherd boy 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years of old by the name of David. He's out tending the sheep. He's been doing that since he was a little boy. He doesn't know anything about the king. He doesn't know anything about, the, uh, about being a king. He doesn't know anything about military strategy. He doesn't know anything, but he's out being faithful. He's tending the sheep since he was a little boy again, just a wet behind the ears teenager, so to speak. And did you know that was his job? And with eloquence, I want you to listen to what someone writes. No angel trumpet heralded. No faces looked out of heaven. The sun rose that morning according to want over the purple walls of the hills of Moab, making the cloud curtains saffron and gold. With the first glimmer of light, the shepherd boy was on his way to lead his flock to the pasture lands, heavy with dew. As the morning hours sped onwards, many duties would engross his watchful soul, strengthening the weak sheep, healing the, the sheep that was sick, binding up that which was broken, and seeking that which was lost, or the music of his song may have filled the listening air. But certainly, David did not know that he was going to be the next king of Israel. How could he? That was David. For him, it was like any other morning. 
And little did he know that his life would be completely transformed and be completely changed and that he had a destiny for the very throne of Israel. Now listen, when you feel the trials of life and when you feel ineffective, we all feel ineffective, we all feel useless, we all feel like it's not making a difference, especially, i got to say it like this, especially young mothers that are home, you feel like, what difference am I making? I'm not working in the workforce or whatever it may be. You're making a big difference in those kids' lives. You are. They need. We need mothers. And if you have to juggle two or three jobs and you have to be a mother, and you have to. you're making a difference. And for those of you that are working and you're trying to live the straight life, so to speak, and you've got to take out the garbage and you've got to pay the bills and you've got you to you deal with your wife's PMS sometimes. Come on, guys. And wives, you have to deal with the stubbornness of your husbands and the hard-headedness of your husbands. Life is so daily. Life is so daily. Here it is. Number three. It's very simple. Don't panic. Don't overanalyze. And number three, don't forget. It's being faithful. Listen. It's be, it's being faithful. It's being faithful in the daily tedium of life and in the simple things of life it is being faithful in the obscure places that God often works the greatest and the most powerful. You never know how God is using you and working in your life in your particular situation that you find yourself in. You never know. What could happen? He's placed you often in a position and I believe that God uses the dailyness of life. And it's exciting. And He's got some exciting things for His children. For some of us, in the obscure places, we may get that promotion that we never thought about in our jobs. For some of us, it may be a promotion to a ministry we never anticipated. For others of us, it may be seeing our next-door neighbor come to know the Lord. You just never know in your simple routine of life, Grant County, salt of the earth people, wherever you folks are from, in the daily hub of life, God often uses simple people in obscure places. Who would have ever thought that this wet behind the ears teenager by the name of David out there tending sheep, just tending sheep, being faithful to what his father wanted him to do, would be elevated to become the next king of Israel. I want you to look at verse 4 with me. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him, and they asked him, did you come in peace? He arrived at Bethlehem. Samuel did all the things that the Lord said. Way to go, Samuel. And that's what we have to do. He just did what God said. He got a heifer. He went to Jesse's house. He's full of expectancy. And after consecrating himself, after worshiping in Jesse's household, Samuel comes face to face with the seven oldest sons of Jesse. And he looked over at Jesse's oldest son. The scripture tells us in verse 16, look at verse 16, and he says, 
Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Isn't that like a typical person? Isn't that like our typical society? Isn't that like, you know, we, we select our politicians according to how good they look, how slick they look. We select our politicians according to the charisma that they have. It wasn't any different. They chose the first king of Israel, Saul, because the Bible says he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was tall. He was good looking. He was dark. He was handsome. And so Samuel just falls right in line. And Samuel looked over the oldest son, Elab, and he goes, that must be the guy. The reason why is, is because he's the oldest. He's the most mature. He's the most muscular looking. He's had, he's had time to, to fight wars with Saul on the front. It must be Elab. But it wasn't the oldest son. And in fact, if you are familiar with the story, you will find out in the next chapter, we see why it wasn't Eli, because he didn't have the character. He put David, the youngest son, down even when God said he was the anointed one. He didn't have the character. It wasn't him. And so here's the first son. It wasn't him. Second son, it's not him. Third son, fourth son, fifth son, sixth son. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. It's not the person. It's not the person that Samuel thought. And this is the fourth don't. This is the final one. I'm almost finished. Don't look on the externals. Don't look on the externals. God chooses and uses people according to the heart. The heart of the matter is always the heart. The heart of the matter is always the heart. And we, we saw a few weeks ago that David had a surrendered heart. He wanted God's will to be preeminent in his life above anything else. He had a servant's heart. He was willing to do anything his father told him, not in a rebellious way. He was obedient to what his dad told him. And he had a sound heart. He was a person of integrity. What he said he meant, he was, what he was on the inside, he was on the outside. Behind closed doors, he was the same person on the outside of his doors. I want to close and look very carefully at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance. Don't consider his height. For I have rejected him. Speaking about Elab. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart of the manner is always the heart. This last week, I uh, I read about, uh, excuse me, it was um, it was about a month ago. How many of you remember uh, George Beverly Shea, the soloist for the Billy Graham Crusade? Did you know that George Beverly Shea died this past year? at 103 years of age. 103 years of age. And as you know, the Lord blessed him. And I, remember, I was reading about him, and he was born in, uh, in 1919. He was born in 1919. Excuse me, 1909. 1909. And his father was a Westland Methodist pastor. He grew up in a, he grew up in a pastor's home. And, uh, and when he became older... Uh, he went to Houghton College to study music, but it was his folks didn't have any money, and he didn't have any money, and, and he didn't know where the money was going to come from. It was 1929, and according to his own words, he felt like his life was over at 23 years old. Ever felt like that? 
23 years old, his entire life he felt like it was over because he couldn't study for the, for the music career. He didn't know what was going to happen. And it came to an absolute dead end. And he had to go and live back with his mom and dad. How many 20-some-year-olds have to live with their folks? It's embarrassing. 23 years old. And his mom and dad were pastoring a Wesleyan Methodist church in New Jersey, Jersey, New Jersey. And so he's back home with his mom and dad. Felt like his life and ministry and his calling had come to an end. And his mom was trying to be very encouraging to him. And so she often would leave poems on the piano. He played the piano and would sing. And she often would leave uh, poems on the piano. And one particular, mo- one particular Sunday morning, his mom left the poem by Rhea F. Miller, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And he wept and he cried like a baby in his own words when he read that poem. And the Lord impressed upon him to put music to that poem. And you know the rest of the story. George Beverly Shea, in a few years, became the featured soloist for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and traveled the world singing, I'd rather have Jesus. And did you know he recorded over 500 songs, but that particular song became his signature song. It is... It is in the simple, obscure places. It is often when we feel like we're at a dead end. It is often when we look around us and we see all the trials and difficulties of life. It is often when we surrender everything to the Lord that we hear those words, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. Jamie, why don't you come and lead us? We're going to sing that song this morning. And uh, it's in your hymnals, hymn number 456.